as you're opening up your Bible, go to the book of Zephaniah. We are um, continuing our series, Majoring in the Minors, in which we're going through all the minor prophets. We come to the ninth one. And uh, Zephaniah is not a normally known prophet. And so while y'all are finding your way there, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, as we turn to your word, Father, we know that you gave your word to accomplish a purpose. You desire to instruct. You desire to correct. You desire to warn. You desire to call. And so as we turn to your word, Father God, I pray that wherever we're at, that you would either instruct us, warn us, call us. And Father, most importantly, through your word, you desire to reveal yourself. So we ask that you would reveal yourself to us more and more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn to the book of Zephaniah, we... As I said, understand that Zephaniah is not really a household name. When, when you're talking about books of the Bible, there's not a whole lot of response when it comes to, oh, Zephaniah. A little bit of background about this book to get us familiar with it. Zephaniah is most likely the author for this book. He's believed to have written it around the 7th century B.C. during the reign of King Josiah. Um, and if you know anything about the uh, lineage of the kings in Judah... Josiah was the last of the godly kings, and he was the reformer who corrected the mistakes of Manasseh and his son uh, Amon. And uh, Josiah was Amon's son, but he's the one that came in and, and, and uh, got rid of the idols and turned Judah back to the Lord. And so Zephaniah is the while he's the least known of the minor prophets, he's also the one that broke the silence from the 8th century prophets. The 8th century prophets being Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah. Zephaniah is the last of what is called the pre-exilic prophets, meaning he is the last prophet before Judah is conquered by Babylon and goes into exile. He's said to have summed up the previous eight prophets' messages that went before him, and so many consider him to be unoriginal because he quotes words and phrases and ideas from his predecessors. But his work is most important for us, especially today, because he has the most elaborate discussion by any of the prophets on the day of the Lord. Each of the three chapters of his short book are dominated by that theme, and what we're going to see is that that theme is worldwide in scope and it portrays God's plans for the day of the Lord and his fulfillment in the final event in history. As I said, the subscription in verse 1 places Zephaniah's prophecy in the reign of King Josiah, who is a godly king, reforming Judah after the two wicked kings and after the apostasy. And in that in, in, in that theme and where he finds himself, we get the theme of Zephaniah's book. And so uh, the theme, if there was one, just one that we wanted to name, it's seek the Lord. His book is a book of judgment, but the message of that is seek the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 2, it says, Gather yourselves together, gather together undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. And as we sang that song Adonai, the Hebrew that we were learning, those are all names of God, which gives us an idea and characterizes who God is. He's given us those names that he himself called himself. The name Zephaniah, I believe, is a deliberate name given to him from God. And the message that he got from God ties together because Zephaniah means Yahweh hides or Yahweh has hidden. Not that Yahweh hides from us, but it's perhaps pointing to God's protection of his people during not only the impending difficulties of Zephaniah's day, but also as well as during the Lord's day in which Zephaniah prophesies about. So as we turn to Zephaniah chapter 1, and we come to the first part of our series of messages through the book of Zephaniah, we're going to focus on the judgment for Jerusalem. And maybe as we consider the day of the Lord, as we consider the end times, as we consider what's going on in the world around us, perhaps you have questions similar to mine. What's God going to do? What's God going to do about the wicked, about the evil, and about sin? What you believe about the answer to that question determines how you choose to live day in and day out. What God is going to do about wickedness, evil, and sin, it's addressed by Zephaniah. Primarily, his prophecy speaks to Judah and Jerusalem, but that doesn't mean we should feel at all comfortable this morning because his book has implications for us all here. Now go back with me, if you will, to being a teenager. For some of us, that's where we're at. Others of us, it's kind of like yesterday. In high school, maybe this was you, maybe it wasn't. Um, maybe I'm just revealing a little bit about where I came from in the past. But you remember, if, if, if that wasn't you, remember the movies that portray this, okay? When your parents go out of town, and they've given you a list of things that you should be doing while they're away and that you shouldn't be doing while they're away. You know, clean the house, take out the trash. If you have pets, feed the animals, don't let them die. They also have a list of things you shouldn't be doing. Um, and I, you know, I probably should have listened to this a little bit more. Don't have friends over. Don't have any parties. Don't break anything. You know, and the list goes on and on depending on how your parents are. Now, you think mom and dad are never going to know if you choose to break the rules because they're gone. They, they, you know, they're not omnipresent. They can't be around all the time. And so, not only that, but you know when they'll be back. So you have plenty of time to get ready for that, right? And so... As you're going through, maybe you get halfway through and you're doing really good. You're sticking to the list. You're, you're following it. And, and then all of a sudden you go, you know what? I'm kind of bored. They're not going to be back for a few days. I got time. I can do what I want. I got time. They'll never know. Well, so you go and you break the rules. You get all the way into it. Maybe you stayed up too late one night and the next day you're like, oh, I have all day. You get called at Seven in the morning. And I've had this call before. And they say, hey, guess what? We're a half hour away. Oh, no. 
<laughs> and here's what happens. There's no more time to prepare. There's no way. You, you can't hide it. You can't undo it. You can't, you, you're stuck. And this is a little bit about what it's like with what God is going to do about sin. Because since Zephaniah's day, God's been talking about that day coming when he's going to deal with sin. And that day hasn't come yet, has it? It's been thousands of years since Zephaniah's day. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus went on the cross. And maybe you're one of those that are here today that are going, maybe God's not going to do anything about it. If you're here and you're thinking this next thought, though, it's probably one of the worst thoughts that you can have, is maybe God can't do anything about it. And so when you start to think that and believe that about God, you start to live your life any way you want because you're like, well, God isn't going to do anything about it or God can't do anything about it. But we have to understand that there is a day coming that the Lord has promised. It's the day of the Lord and it means judgment for Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day. And we better understand that that same day, that same prophecy, that same promise is coming and it has implications for us as well. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priests along with the priests, those who bow in worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced, all those loaded with silver will be cut off, and at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing, good or bad. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of ram's horn and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. 
The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together, gather together undesirable nation before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. As we consider the judgment for Jerusalem, what we see first proclaimed is that it will be a clean sweep. A clean sweep. And now we're a few months away from spring, and so I think we can talk about it freely without any hurt feelings or anybody uh, having any feelings of regret. But, you know, springtime is a time where we all get out and we start spring cleaning, right? Guys, we'll clean out the garage maybe, and we'll get it all straightened up and make it perfect and all throughout the house, kids, right? Mom goes crazy or dad goes crazy and it's like time to wash the walls and polish the doorknobs and all sorts of stuff like that, right? The point is, is it's spring cleaning. It's a clean sweep. You go through the house and you get it all straightened up and looking perfect again. Well, that's what we see. The first three verses of Zephaniah, it says, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. He says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. He says, I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. And you know, in, in the Hebrew, where it says, this is the Lord's declaration, you know what that is? It's just the tetragrammaton, the four consonants that make the name of God. It's the covenant name of God. This is the same thing as when Moses asked God, what's your name? And he said, I am that I am. That's, the phrase is literally, I am that I am, meaning I'm the one that says this. I'm the one that declares it. I'm the one that will make it come to pass. I am the one that promises it. In the first words of his message, it speaks of the clean sweep. God declares he's going to sweep everything away from the face of the earth. He says, I'm going to sweep away people, animals, birds, fish, the ruins along with the wicked. He says, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. That word sweep is used three times. It means to gather, to take away, to remove or destroy completely. The picture that Zephaniah is putting here, the picture that God wants to portray here is it's a universal clean sweep affecting everything on the face of the earth. The other thing I want us to see that I believe that the Lord is pointing out is that phrase face of the earth. That phrase face of the earth should bring our attention back to Genesis chapter 6, which is the last time that God judged the world and wiped everything off the face of the earth when God flooded the earth because man was so wicked within the first six chapters of the very first book of the Bible, man had already become so wicked. God says, you know what? A clean sweep. And Zephaniah 
is using the same phrase to tie it back to that. It's a judgment from God that will be complete and total with complete destruction. And I think it ties also to us today because as it was in the days of Noah, so it was in the days of Zephaniah. And what did Jesus say? was the sign of the end times coming, the sign of that day coming. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at that time. There will be great trouble coming. And maybe we see that and we kind of think that's a little unfair. But we have to understand that complete clean sweep of sin, that is the natural response of a holy God to the wickedness of humanity. Our God is so holy, he cannot remain in the presence of unrighteousness, in the presence of sin. And just like the flood, we need to remember that the judgment that God proclaims is going to cover the whole earth. It's going to hit everything. Life on land, life in the air, life in the sea. And interestingly, these four things that it mentions are in the reverse order to the creation account of Genesis as well. It's like God is saying that he's going to have a reversal of creation or an act of winding back creation in those days. The last part that he mentions that he's going to clean sweep, he says, I'm going to clean sweep the ruins along with the wicked. And maybe, maybe you're smarter than I am. But when I looked at that, I go, what? But that word ruins can also be translated. Maybe your Bible has it translated differently. Maybe it has it translated as stumbling block. And it's related to idols and idolatry. And what God is saying is he's not even going to leave, like he's going to clean sweep. He's not even going to leave the little remnants of the past, previous idolatry and wickedness that the people were committing. He's not going to leave any of that. He's going to get rid of all of it. And start again with a clean slate for when he sets up the kingdom, and the reign of Jesus Christ on earth. The Lord's declaration is to give the picture of an all-encompassing judgment that has complete and total destruction. That's the clean sweep. The second thing that Zephaniah goes in that God tells him to preach is this. It's completely deserved. In verse 4, Zephaniah continues on and speaking for the Lord. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of pagan priests along with the priests. Those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. Those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I'll punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry for, from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district. And a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow. For all the merchants will be silenced and all those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably. 
who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing, no good, no bad. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. Maybe as we think about the clean sweep and the idea of it all encompassing with complete destruction, it seems a bit much. Maybe it seemed a bit much to those in Jerusalem as well. God through Zephaniah is focusing in on Judah and Jerusalem to show that this day of God's judgment is completely deserved. By this time, the northern kingdom has already been conquered by Assyria, assimilated and dispersed and scattered throughout. There is no more northern kingdom. Those ten tribes of Israel are lost. To this day, they're still lost. Nobody can trace their lineage back to those tribes at this point. Nobody except God, of course. There was never a time in the northern kingdom's history that they did not have a wicked king on the throne. Every king each and after was wicked only. Pushing them into idolatry. Teaching them not to observe the Lord in the ways that he's commanded. Especially from the throne. Now Judah, they had their share of bad kings. In fact, Ahab sacrificed his own son to the god of Moloch. Manasseh and Ammon just did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Just bloodshed continually and continually. And so God has already given Judah the message that judgment is coming for them also. And while he's being specific that it's coming to Judah and Jerusalem, I think if we allow him to, God will uncover a bit of our own hearts here and so that we can see the problem of the sin from that day remains today. God declares that he's going to stretch out his hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. You see, because they had turned from their God to other gods. Verse 4 and 5 speaks of how they turned to Baal. And they turned to Milcom or Molech. Molech is the pagan god that demanded child sacrifice. And maybe we're like, but I'm here at church right now. I didn't turn from God. I'm not worshiping any idols. We're gonna, we need to understand that anything that turns us away from God is an idol. Money can be an idol. Your marriage can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. Your reputation can be an idol. Your friends can be idol. Like anything that takes you away from focusing on what God has called you to, what God wants for you and where God is leading you can be an idol. You may not be worshiping Baal or anything like that, but it's an idol nonetheless. Then there's those who may not have stopped worshiping God. They continue to bow and worship. Maybe you haven't turned away from God completely, but those things hold as high a place in your heart as God does. Essentially saying, Yahweh is good, but not good enough. Remember the problem of Israel from the start of them being a nation and entering into the promised land. They turned and they said, we want to be like other nations. They said, we want to be tolerant. 
And so in their tolerance, they chose to learn of other gods as well. They said, let's check out the other cultures. Let's see what else is out there. Maybe we're not the ones that have all the right answers. And maybe I can't tell someone that I know the true God and they're not following the true God. And they go, how can I be so intolerant? And so they learn of these other gods. And so they go, oh, wow, you worship that God. It's kind of like worshiping the same God we do. But what ends up happening is when you become tolerant, you learn of other gods, you begin worshiping false gods, you begin worshiping stars and planets and astrology. Maybe, you know, that's all harmless, right? We all turn to the comic section of the newspaper, or at least when it was printed, there was a comic section in the newspaper and there's this little spot under there for the horoscopes. That's what it is to turn and to start following the stars and the planets and the creation rather than the creator. They begin to mix the worship of Yahweh and the worship of other religions and other gods. And you can't do that. We need to understand that you can't mix Jesus and Buddha. You can't mix Yahweh and Allah. You can't mix light and darkness. God calls for wholehearted loyalty and devotion to him. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question that the people then had to ask themselves, who is your God? Because Jesus told the disciples and Jesus told them on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said, no one can serve two masters. He will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You see, you can't serve both God and and money, or God and mammon. You can't serve two gods. You can't serve two masters. And Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, said, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial or Baal? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And there's a destructive theology that is going out along out there where they say that all the monotheistic religions, they all worship the same God. But I want you to know Yahweh and Allah are not the same God, completely different character. And there's only one true and living God. God not only pointed out those who had turned to idols though. So there might be some who are thinking, well, I didn't turn to an idol. I'm not serving another. I'm not mixing worship. There's a worse category, those who refuse to worship. Verse 6 speaks to those who turn away from the Lord. Those who were once following God, but have turned away. And now instead of following God, they don't even seek the Lord. They don't inquire of the Lord. They're speaking of someone who may not have turned to what they would consider idolatry, but have definitely turned away from the Lord and instead turned to something called secularism, humanism, or better yet, the worship of I, me, myself, and I. I will do what I want to. I am the leader of my own destiny. I am the one who decides. And the truth is, is to be religiously indifferent is not to be excused from judgment of the Lord, but it rather places you squarely in the crosshairs of his coming judgment. So you may not have turned to false gods, but you're worshiping yourself as God, and that's just as bad. There's nothing that anyone can say against all this either. The Bible, the Lord says right here, be silent in the presence of the Lord God. That's all that's going to happen. 
All these people that think that they're going to have words with God or that they're going to be able to explain their situation, they're going to be silenced in the presence of God. Knowing that they're deserving. It's hard to stand before a holy God and not feel your own unrighteousness. Each and every person recorded in the Bible as having stood before God said, woe is me for I am undone. Each one said, I am not why should I look on something so pure when I am so impure? Like they come to a realization of their true state in comparison to God. And so God says, I've prepared a sacrifice and I've consecrated the guests. You see, he's prepared the sacrifice of the wicked. That clean sweep where he wipes out the wicked, wiping out the wicked, that is to appease his wrath against their unrighteousness, against their wickedness, against their sinfulness. And on the day of the sacrifice, God speaks of who will be punished. And it surprised them in that day. It surprised them in Jesus' day. And it still remains to surprise people in today's time of who is going to face judgment against God. He says, I'm going to punish the princes, the officials. I'm going to punish the king's sons. He says, the upper class, the high class society, the top, what do we call them? The top 1% are going to face judgment. Because they're in the top 1%? No. He's going to punish those who are dressed in foreign clothing. Is God really against foreigners? No. What that's talking about is those who have chosen to put on and to be what God has commanded them not to be. Those who walk in, in clothed in unrighteousness when he says to be clothed in righteousness. He says, I'm going to punish those who skip over the threshold. So stop jumping into your house when you walk in. No, he's, it's, it's in reference again to um, something that happened with the Ark of the Covenant when um, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They took it and they said, you know what? Here's a good spot for this. Let's put it in the Temple of Dagon. And if you've never read that story, it's a great story to read um, because it shows that God is the true and living God and other gods can't even defend themselves. So the Philistines put him in the temple of Dagon. And what happens is the first day they come and they find Dagon is turned completely around. Just facing the wrong way. So they get together. They turn this ginormous idol back around. Then the next day they come in and his hands are cut off. And they go, what's going on here? And so they continue to leave it. And then they come in the next day and he's completely toppled over. The only thing that remains is his torso and it crosses the threshold. And this speaks to those who would go to idolatry. It even speaks to those who think that they can put Yahweh in the same heart as any other God. He says those who are mixed, those who are divided in their loyalty are going to be punished. He says, I'm going to punish those who fill their master's house with deceit and violence. This can speak to the other part of class. It's not just the upper class that face judgment. It's the middle class. It's the lower class. The lower class in Zephaniah's day, they were too sinful to hear his warning. They were too busy ripping off their masters. Why? Because their masters deserved it. Because they're rich. How dare they? And they're so poor. And so they say, my state of affairs is because of, my, my lack of blessing is because they're blessed. 
The same defense is given today. I mean, you hear it all the time, the little guy justifying his actions against his employer, against the corporation, or even against the government. It's okay to defraud the government because they have all that and I have nothing. Let that not be so among the Lord's people. It was offensive to God in Zephaniah's day and it's offensive to God today. The merchants will face punishment. It says the outcry from the fish gate, which I don't know if you knew this, but the fish gate got its name because that's where all the people who went fishing and caught fish would go in and out of. So it was the fish gate. Super creative in their naming schemes. It says those who are loaded with silver will be cut off. He also says, I'm, I'm going to punish those who are comfortable, those who are complacent. Those who are indifferent, who think that the Lord is also indifferent or complacent and thinking that God's not going to do anything good or bad. The point is, is everyone is going to face judgment. Everyone has the potential to face judgment. And all they're going to be able to do in that day is wail and weep for the judgment is going to be severe. And then God says something else. He says, I'm going to search out all with the lamps so that none go unpunished. See, in that day and time, they didn't have indoor electricity. And when you built a structure that has a roof on it, and the only light that you have is either the sun, the reflection of the sun and the moon, and candlelight, there's a great potential for shadows. There's a great potential for hiding places. And what God is saying is, I'm going to search it all out with lamps. And that says two things. The first, no one's sin will be hidden. No one's getting away with it. And the second thing is, if you are God's people, understand this. It's a word of comfort in that there is no sin that will go unpunished. Nothing that is done against his children that will go unnoticed. Nothing that is done against you that he will not get vengeance on. He's going to search it out with a lamp and take care of it. And then he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to remove their wealth. Their houses will become ruined. They're going to build houses, but they're never going to live in them. This is indicative of, in his time of how quickly the judgment from Babylon was going to come and how they're going to go into exile. But also, it's indicative of how fast the judgment of the Lord is going to come. In which those who live their entire life building up their kingdom, building up their houses, they're going to amass all this stuff. And you know what? Judgment's going to come and they don't even get to enjoy any of it. They're going to plant their vineyards, but they'll never drink of its fruit. It'll be taken suddenly and without warning. It's a judgment coming that's completely deserved by every single class, level, and person in society. We're also shown by Zephaniah that it's explicitly described. You see, our God is a God of his word. And so he explicitly describes things in his word because he's able to hold up his word. Verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, 
a day of ram's horn and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is one of the most vivid pictures in the Bible for the day of the Lord given right here. It's the day of God's wrath on men because of their wickedness. It is a day described as a day of war, as a day of distress, and as a day of slaughter. And I think the most important thing that Zephaniah describes here, the one thing that God wants his people to know then, to know in Jesus' time, and to know even today, this day of the Lord was near. It's described as near and approaching rapidly. Each day that goes by brings it closer. There's not a set number of days. It's a timing set by the Lord of when. And no one but the Father in heaven knows when that day is. We, we know that when Jesus came and walked the earth, he told people the end is near. We know that when Jesus went to heaven and the disciples were left on the earth and then they were all martyred and everything, we know that they were living in the end times. But the end times have also been described as having occurred since the Old Testament as well. That that day is near. That that time is near. And here's how that timeline works. We think of time in a linear fashion. And so we can only go forward. We can never go backwards in time. Although we wish we could, right? What would we change if we could go backwards in time? But the way that time works is we came up to the edge at the ascension of Christ, at the birth of the church, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We came up to the edge, and instead of going over the edge, we're cruising along at the edge. At any given time, we can go over the edge whenever the Lord says, now. And that's where we've been at. No one but the Father in heaven knows when that day will be when we finally go over the edge. But that proclaimed day of the Lord... It is not a good day. That's not a, oh, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. That's going to be a wonderful time. It's a day of terror. It's a day described of utter horror. It's a day of intense judgment and furious indignation of God poured out on a sinful and deserving world. And don't let that phrase day of the Lord confuse you either. It's, it's mentioned as a day, but it's a time period. And the Bible teaches that that time period, that day of the Lord, lasts seven years. It's known as the time of tribulation. In the Old Testament, it's known as Jacob's trouble. Jacob, because they turned from God, and because they uh, martyred Jesus, their Messiah, God has set them aside, consecrated them to go through that time period of trouble. As his special people, they will go through that time period of trouble. The Lord in his own good and his own plan has said that that's what's going to purify that nation for him and turn them back to him, that they would, when Jesus comes again, they would accept their Messiah as Lord and Savior, be his people once again. That day is described as a day of wrath. It's a day of trouble. Distress, destruction, desolation, darkness, gloom, 
clouds. Is that how you would describe your perfect day? It's not how I would describe it. That is a day that is like, I don't want to be there. It's a day of the ram's horn, which the ram's horn was used to assemble the people to call them together for battle to warn of coming danger. It's going to be a time of danger unlike anything they've ever known. They're going to call people together, but there's nothing they can do about it about it. It's a battle cry against fortified cities and high corner towers. It's the people gathering together thinking that they can continue to fight and reject and to um, wage war against God. But at that time, there are none who will be able to withstand that terrible day. There's none who can fight against God. There's none who can be victorious against God. Revelation chapter 6 describes the day of the Lord very similar to Zephaniah here, but it's called the wrath of the lamb described by John. And it's important because there's a group of people that is noticeably absent from this day. It's those who trust and are found in the Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is after in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that he talks about those who are grieving those that they've lost. He says, those who have fallen asleep or those who have died before us, he said, we don't weep as those who have no hope. And here's our hope that at the trump, at the last trump, uh, the voice of an archangel will shout and Christ will come back for them in the air and call them up to them. And when he calls them up to them, he says, we who are alive and remain shall by no means precede those who have fallen asleep for they shall be caught up first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. And then we will be with the Lord evermore. That is the promise of the rapture. The reason why it's called the rapture is because that word where he says that he will catch them up or caught up or snatch up in the Latin. When Jerome translated the Bible, he used the word rapturas. And so the doctrine of the rapture comes from that, comes from that phrase. There are those who teach that believers will go through the tribulation before being caught up in the rapture. And I believe that this passage un, uh, undermines that premise because Jesus did tell us we're going to go through tribulation in this life. Right? Little t tribulation. We are going to face the wrath of Satan. We as the church, that's our destiny. We are involved in spiritual warfare. You're not going to get out of that. But I will tell you this. I would much rather face the wrath of Satan than the wrath of God. Because Satan's wrath will by no means come anywhere close to the wrath and the indignation of God as he judges the world. And we know that that tribulation period, it is God-focused wrath being poured out. It's God's judgment being poured out. I liken it to what I heard from a uh, late theologian, Ed Henson. He wrote a lot on the uh, end times eschatology and everything. And uh, I got the privilege and honor to see him in March before he passed away just a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that he said was he said that those who teach that the church has to go through the tribulation, it's almost as if they're teaching and, and believing that Christ is saying he's going to marry his bride. But before he marries his bride, he's going to take him over so his dad can beat him up first. And it doesn't matter where you place the church going from the tribulation, whether it's mid-trib or end of the tribulation, 
at some point the bride has to be beat up. But what is Christ charged with to do at the church? To prevent her spotless, holy, and blameless to the Father. Lifting her up. Protecting her. The truth is, the believers endure tribulations now and in this time. But the unbeliever, the one who has turned from and rejected God... They are the ones called to go through the tribulation when the wrath of the Lamb is poured out upon a world that rejects Him. That is how God has set it apart. And the day of the Lord, I still don't have that one. I don't know why I keep going to it. The day of the Lord comes with certainty as the Lord says, I will bring distress on mankind because they have sinned against the Lord. And at that time, we're going to see, in this life we know people. They trust in money. They trust in their friendships, their relationships. They trust in their family. They trust in their own ability to create, do, and all these other things. But guess what? None of that is going to do them any good on the day of judgment. The day when God's wrath is poured out. The day in which the earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy because he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end to all the inhabitants of the earth. That's what's going to happen to all the ungodly. They will be wiped out. Completely. God's wrath is a consuming fire. And when Jesus comes again, it's always described, it's going to be sudden. It's like a thief in the night. And everyone has sinned and everyone is under that judgment. The day of the Lord, it will be a clean sweep. It will be completely deserved. And it's certainly coming. Certainly deserved, certainly coming, day of the Lord. And God would be just and good if it ended there. But we have chapter 2 in which it starts. But perhaps, perhaps you will be concealed. Perhaps you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. And this is why I think Zephaniah's name has so much meaning in the fact that he is the one giving this prophecy. His name means God has hidden. Maybe you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. I don't know about you, but if that's me facing the wrath of the Lord, his coming anger, it's pointed at me, it's certain, it's just, and it's deserved. Obviously, I can't argue my way out of it. I can't be righteous enough to escape it. I'm toast. The only chance I have, the only hope I have, rests in the one who's against me. And that's an interesting thing to consider. You see, Zephaniah chapter 2 says, Gather yourselves together, gather together, undesirable nation. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. He says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. You see, there's hope when faced with the day of the Lord's anger. But that hope is in no one else. That hope is in nothing else but the Lord himself. 
And that's the way the Lord wanted it. You see, on the one side, if we come to God in our own and on our own, trying to uphold ourselves, we face God's wrath. There's no hope for us. But God says, if one were to humble themselves, if one were to come to me, we can face God on the other side through his mercy and his grace. There's a way perhaps to be hidden and concealed by the Lord. And it's through the Lord himself. The first call is that they would gather themselves together. And then they would gather together as an undesirable nation. And this is coming to the realization and the agreement of their state. Their undesirable and pitiful state. You see, this is the part of coming and turning to the Lord. And it's known as confession. Confession is when we come and we admit and we agree with God about the truth of our own sinfulness. Then Zephaniah is going from the confession, this coming together. He says it must be before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like chaff. You see, this has to happen before the Lord's anger overtakes you and before the day of the Lord's anger. When's that day? I don't know. Only God knows. But we know it's coming. We know it's coming soon. It's near. It's certain. Before that day is the time to confess. Because in that day, you can't confess. You see, it's, it's a wonderful thing. The Lord gives the prophecy of judgment. But he doesn't give the prophecy of judgment to go, this is what I have coming for you. Ha ha, let's see how you do. The Lord gives his prophecy of judgment Because he has a desire to use that judgment to motivate the people to move. You see, the description and the prophesying of the coming day of the Lord is a warning. It's a warning used as an invitation for repenting now. Why would he warn us about the judgment to come if there's nothing we can do about it? But he always gives it. He gave it out at Nineveh. He's given it out at every prophecy of judgment that comes. It comes with an ability to react to the warning. Do not miss the urgency of the day passing like chaff. Chaff is that worthless part of the wheat grain. You throw it up in the air, the wind blows, and it's gone. So it is the time of grace and mercy. It says, last, you have to seek the Lord, all the humble. Why the humble? Because it is only the humble who rightly seek the Lord. Those who carry out what he commands, those who desire to seek righteousness are also the ones that seek humility. Strive and seek for the things of the Lord because those who seek the Lord can fall upon his mercy and his grace. You see, in more than one place throughout scripture, God promises to hide his righteous in the day of great judgment. As we are going to see when Israel goes into captivity when Babylon conquers them. There are many that are going to be slaughtered. But there are some who remain because God has promised to keep a remnant. Because God has promised to hide those who are true and faithful to him. It's especially relevant at the time of the great tribulation as well. Though Israel will go through that time of tribulation, you know what God has promised? 
that he would keep them through it. That through that tribulation, God has ordained it to be used as a way to chastise Israel, to provoke them, to bring them back to him. So that when Christ appears again in the second coming and he comes with his church and he comes with all his saints and he comes at the end to set up his millennial reign, that Israel would see him and accept him and receive him as their Messiah whom they once rejected. Jesus warned us in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. God has promised an escape. This warning of judgment, as we see, is not just about the coming Babylonian exile. That is mentioned but it's about the eternal judgment on all of sin. The way that one can be concealed, the way that one can be hidden, and the way that one can be sheltered from the day of God's wrath. That for those who trust in Jesus, did you know that the day of God's wrath has already come? You see, it was on the cross that Jesus experienced a day of wrath, a day of distress, a day of anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, day of clouds and blackness and a day of trumpet and battle cry in which the enemy thought he had won. This was the day when Jesus faced God's wrath. Remember when he was in the garden of Gethsemane the night before in which he was crucified. Jesus was in the garden and what was he praying? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What cup? Jesus mentioned it before to his disciples that he must drink the cup of God's wrath. When he went to the cross, he drank the entire cup of God's wrath for those who would trust in him. This anger, this judgment is unavoidable, yes. And a price has to be paid. And when we choose, when we trust in Jesus, we find that that price has been paid in full. When Jesus from the cross yelled out to tell us die, he said it is finished. He said it is paid in full. It's an accounting term. It means there is no more. It's paid. God has no more wrath to pour out on those who are in Christ Jesus because it's been taken by his son at Calvary. Jesus bore the anger of the day of the Lord. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. If you're not a Christian here today, if you are not in Christ here today, I hope you see how serious this is. Because there's no way that we can avoid God's judgment on our own. There's only one chance we have, and it's in Jesus Christ, the only one who laid down his life for us. If we don't accept his sacrifice for us, then there's coming a day where we have to face God's anger ourselves. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how many people we can line up behind us who are worse than us, the judgment will be deserved. It will be unavoidable. But I also want to say, if you are here in Christ Jesus today and you know this and you're like, I I, I know I'm saved from the wrath of God. Do you have friends or family who aren't Christian that don't know Jesus? Because like Zephaniah We need to proclaim God's judgment to warn them. To let them know that they don't have 
that judgment is coming, but they don't have to face judgment because there was one who was willing to die and took the judgment upon himself. It's not enough for us just to show God's love to our friends and family. We have to tell them about the coming judgment. We need to warn people to run to Jesus because he has promised that he will hide them on the day of God's wrath. For us who trust in Jesus, should we take the warning of Zephaniah? I say yes and no. Yes, we don't need to wail, living in fear that God will punish us for our sins. The punishment's already fallen on Jesus, like I said. But in another sense, we need a healthy fear of God. Perhaps our picture of God is skewed. Do we picture God as, as a really, you know, do we see him as one who's going to utterly sweep and, and totally judge sin and is fully righteous and holy? Or do we think that he's some God who's just going to forgive everything or some God who can't handle anything? Do we see him as one whose anger is a consuming fire? I would caution you, don't take the warning of this coming judgment lightly just because we know Jesus and we have our get out of jail free card. Because we are very much still called to seek righteousness and humility. Not because those things save us. Only Christ's death on the cross saves us. But it's because only in humility and understanding of how sinful we are that we flee to Jesus for forgiveness. We have to come to a point where we see sin as God sees sin, where we see our sin as God sees our sin. Understand the reality that judgment is coming and flee to Jesus and shelter under his blood, under his sacrifice, and then seek to live righteous, humble lives, turning even away from the slightest hint of sin. The day of the Lord is a clean sweep, it's completely deserved. It's described, promised destruction. But in the same breath of God's promise of judgment, perhaps if we seek to come to Jesus, we may be sheltered on the day of his wrath. That, that perhaps will be sheltered on his day. That's actually a statement of certainty that that will happen. It's not a, well, just wait and see. Let's see how it all works. Now that's a promise from God in Christ Jesus. You will be shielded from his day of wrath. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we just thank you so much for your word, Father God. I thank you that you've spoken through your prophets, that you give that warning of judgment, Father God. Father, that we can see that you are a God who promises to handle the sin, that promises to deal with the wickedness. But Father, we also understand that when you promise to do that, we fall under the category of sinful and wicked. But Lord, even in that, you sent your son to be our savior. To die on the cross, to drink the cup of your wrath. That any and all who would come to him and call out for salvation in his name and ask for forgiveness. That he would cover with his own righteousness they and we in him would be hidden on the day of the Lord, on the day when you pour out your wrath. So it's in his name that we trust. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.